I am sex free and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. I didn't know that I was coming to Dodger Stadium or something like that. <laughs> there are not this many people in uh, Vista. So somebody's been shaking the bushes. I would start out by telling you that I certainly wish that you wouldn't tell Clancy that I came down here without a coat and tie on. <laughs> but the second guy I saw after I got here was a spy of his. Right over here he is, the guy with the loud laugh denoting the vacant mind. So he's down there just to tell on me. <clears throat> I said I'm an alcoholic. What does that mean to me? It means that I cannot successfully drink liquor. And of myself, I cannot successfully keep from drinking. This is my dilemma. I can't successfully drink liquor, and I can't successfully, of myself, keep from drinking. So why am I not drunk tonight? This is a good night to be drunk. It's Tuesday. There's no better time to be drunk than Tuesday when it's Tuesday, is there? So why am I not drunk tonight? There's only one reason. Only one. There are not two. There's just one. I have the thing I was looking for in the bottle. I have the thing I was looking for in the bottle. Now, what is the thing? I'm not fighting me or you or life or God or the devil. I'm at peace with me and with you and with my very own God. And that's the only reason I'm not drunk. If I felt right here like I felt 35 years ago, I'd be just as drunk as I was 35 years ago. So, it's very necessary to me, if I want to stick around, that I don't get the feeling like I felt 35 years ago. So, that means that there's something I need to do that I wasn't doing 35 years ago. And what's that? It is doing the things that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous suggests that I might do if I want to stay sober. To do doing those things. It says someplace there, here are the steps we took. Here are the steps we took. T-double-O-K took, it says there. I am fearful that some of us forget about it saying, here are the steps we took. And think maybe it's here are the steps we read. <laughs> Well, here are the steps we heard read. 
Well, here are the steps we discussed in last night's discussion meeting. Or here are the steps we learn by heart. <laughs> or here are the steps we con God into taking for us. We forget that it says here are the steps we took. Key to bloke they took. And so I think it's very necessary that for the likes of me that uh, we follow the formula laid down because I had my own formulas for a long time and they didn't work. And I came to this society in January 1946 And I've never had a drink or a pill since January 1946. So I'm pretty high on this program. <laughs> I like it pretty good. Because uh, this is a pretty good life. Even if you have to come all the way down here from Laguna Beach on Tuesday night. At your rate of pay, it's not that... Uh... <laughs> but I'm very glad to be here. <clears throat> the thing that I can't seem to get away from at all is that... Uh, the first three steps of this program are uh, about as near poison for an individual as anything I ever ran into. The first step, step number one, says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable by us. They don't say by us, but that's what it means. <clears throat> now that's just the first one and it's a twofold admission of defeat can you imagine that starts you right out powerless over alcohol physical unmanageable life mental I've lost the battle twice over and I'm only on the first step the second step is much worse than the first because it's a second-hand admission that I'm insane. <laughs> so number one, I've lost the battle of life. Number two, I'm nuts. <laughs> now it reads, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now I submit to you that there is a, an implication here. <laughs> Same people don't need to be restored to sanity. What? <clears throat> if I need to be restored to sanity, I'm insane. Now, there, there are two goodies to start with. I've lost about a life twice over and I'm nuts. And that's only two steps. <laughs> 
And the third one's worse than both of them. <coughs> the third one says, I've got to get out of the driver's seat. I've got to turn over the keys. And as serious as this is, it just tickles the hell out of me. When I was a drinking man, the only way you could get my keys was to wait till I passed out. I wouldn't have given my keys to God. I could come out of a pub at three o'clock in the morning with my wife or yours. She'd say, honey, give me the keys, I'll drive. I'd say, whose car? Whose car are you going to drive? This is my car. If you're going to make it in. You might be there at daylight. You ain't gone no place, but you still got the keys. <laughs> Step three says you got to give up the keys. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, as we understood it. We got to get right out of the driver's seat. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, as we understood him. Now, thank God, the words as we understood him has no reference to understanding the infinite. Thank God. It has reference only to the necessity of individual experience. The necessity of individual experience. My God, your God. I tried to find your God for 30 years before I got here. And I couldn't find him. And I kind of came here not even looking for mine. And sometime in the first six years that I was here, we found each other. And I wasn't even looking for him. So, again, the necessity of individual experience. My God, your God. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God, as we understood it. <clears throat> Those are the first three steps. Now, in my opinion, there isn't an alcoholic on the face of the earth, male or female, that can walk up to step one and take it without a little bit of preparation. <laughs> There's got to be a little preparation. Or we're not going to take that step one. People of our ilk are not noted for their proclivity to surrender on every other street corner. <laughs> that isn't one of our long suits. We don't surrender. And so there's a couple of things that happen, according to our bookie, before we get to that Step one. In the first line of the second paragraph of chapter three, 
It says something like this. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. Now that's the first line of chapter 3. The first line of the second paragraph of chapter 3. And the program of recovery is in the fifth chapter, two chapters over. Why would the first step in recovery be way back there in chapter 3? I think it is because if we be alcoholic, we are caught in a trap we cannot spring. We have to have help. And we can't get help until we recognize the need for it. God himself can't help us until we'll allow it. So, it says we... came to see that it was necessary for us to fully concede to our innermost selves. Now, to fully concede to my innermost self is not only the admission of the fact, but the acceptance of the fact. I'm an alcoholic. And then it goes ahead to say, this is the first step in recovery. Now, there's another condition that comes before step one. It is, however, in chapter five. And it says this. It says, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length, any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. Any length Put sobriety number one, top man on our totem pole. And I'm one who believes that unless and or until sobriety comes first, we can't have it. And unless it remains first, we cannot keep it. Because otherwise we will not do the things necessary to obtain and maintain sobriety. We will not do it. If there was any way that I could have survived without showing up at this leper colony, I would not be here yet. <laughs> and so, it has to happen that we come to see that we must have help and that we are willing to go to any length to get it. Any length to get it. Now, in my way of thinking, our formula for sobriety is the finest formula that was ever conceived in the mind of man through the grace of God. to obtain and maintain sobriety. I don't think there's a formula any place that gets even close to it. <coughs> to obtain and maintain sobriety. 
Now I say, conceived in the mind of man through the grace of God, because I think that's the way it happened. It was my good fortune to have known our number one man, Bill W., for some 20 years before he died. I met him in 1953 and was with him a great deal until his death in 1971. And his explanation of the way these 12 steps came into being is very interesting. Bill was subject to depressions, pretty bad depressions. And he suffered a great deal from depressions. Now, I'm convinced, because of what I'm about to tell you, that there are two kinds of depressions. There's the depression of the ego, which many of us experience. It's bad enough. As a matter of fact, it's worse than the next one. Because the other one is the depression of the spirit. Bill says that when it came time for him to write the 12 steps, he was totally inadequate. He did not... He was depressed, that's what he was. But it was urgent that he get this thing done. And the, the reasons for it were not as altruistic as we might think. <laughs> it wasn't so much that uh, we needed these 12 steps as it was that they needed the book. <laughs> because they needed some money. Every damn one of them was starving to death. <laughs> and they needed to finish the book that they were writing and get it published so that you make a little dough. And so he had, to, he had to write out the program of recovery. Now, up until this time, they had only had in their program seven steps. There were just seven of them. And Bill sat down to write. And in 30 minutes, The 12 steps were on paper. And he looked at them and he says, uh, look, he says there are 12 of them. So that's good. He says There's, there were 12, 12 apostles. <laughs> 12 months in the year, 12 is a good number. And he thought that was fine. And uh, there were 12 steps. And there's still 12 steps. And in essence, they have not been changed. Some of the wording is uh, a little bit different. But in essence, they're just like they came out when he wrote them. And I am convinced that they came out of where they are. You know, he was out of his own way. And there they were. So I like to say the finest formula that was ever conceived in the mind of man through the grace of God because I think that's where they came from. <clears throat> now,
It is very, very necessary, in my way of thinking, that we do the things that I was told my first meeting, my very first meeting. I came to my first meeting by myself alone. I like to say by myself alone because I'm quite often by myself now, but I'm never alone. There's quite a difference. But my first meeting, I, uh, I had to find because uh, I didn't know how to find you guys. My keen alcoholic mind told me you wouldn't be in the phone book. You were anonymous, weren't you? And they don't anonymous in the phone book. So knowing you weren't there, I never looked. Which is the story of my life. I know so damn much that wasn't true, I couldn't learn anything that was. So I had to call people and ask them if they knew anybody that knew anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I did this is prior to 33 years ago, and there weren't many people in Alcoholics Anonymous on the coast at that time. <clears throat> I finally got a hold of a guy's telephone number and name from a doctor in Beverly Hills. I lived there then. And I called his old boy up. <clears throat> he was a picture man. <clears throat> and I called him, and we talked a little bit, and he said, have you had a drink today? And I said, no. Well, he says, don't take one. I'm working nights right now, and I can't take you to a meeting tonight, but I might not be working tomorrow night, so call me again tomorrow. And I called him tomorrow. And we talked a little bit, and he says, you had a drink today? And I said, no. Well, he says, don't take one. I'm still working. <laughs> call me tomorrow. So I called him the third day, and we talked a little bit, and I said, I know, you're still working. And he says, yes. <clears throat> I says, you don't need to take me to a meeting. Where's there a meeting that I can go to? I'll go myself. You don't have to take me. <clears throat> and he told me, and it wasn't so far from my home, so I determined to go. And uh, everything was all right until it was maybe 10 or 15 minutes before I should leave for the meeting. And then I got a little bit perturbed. I got to thinking maybe I shouldn't be seen with people like you. <laughs> it might not be good for my reputation. <clears throat> now you have no idea how funny this is. Because in my last dozen years, I've spent more t time in the Beverly Hills jail than the jailer. And yet I was concerned with my reputation. But I overcame it. I disguised myself a little and sallied forth. And the meeting was on the ground floor in the building at the corner, one of the corners of Wilshire and Santa Monica in Beverly Hills, in what was known as the Veterans of Foreign Wars Hall. And I walked up to the door and looked in. And there might have been uh, 30, 35 people there. 
And they were all standing in the middle of the room, everyone of them talking, nobody listening. <laughs> Just like always. <laughs> I often wondered how in the hell we ever learned anything because nobody ever listens. Everybody talks all the time, you know. And even if you start a conversation between two of you, you can't finish it because they butt into you. <laughs> Everybody moves right in on you. So I looked you over and I said, well, uh, again, they've given you the wrong information. This is the wrong night. These are the veterans and their wives and they're here for a party. And I'm going to have to go home and come back tonight to drugstore here. Because, you see, you didn't look like me, you weren't dressed like me, and you certainly weren't talking like me, because it was all happy talk. So, I knew that they'd given me the wrong dope. And I turned to leave. Now, the reason I'm here tonight, I'm going to tell you in the next minute and a half. Somebody in the middle of that room had been watching me. And he came running over to the door. And he called after me. He says, Mister, were you looking for somebody? And I said, No, sir. Well, he says, What were you looking for then? And thinking it was a veteran, I said, Well, if it would interest you, sir. I was looking for sobriety. And everything about that man seemed just like that. It was just like you'd touched the electric light switch. He lit up like a Christmas tree. And it was obvious that he was glad it was there. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. Everybody that knew me was glad I was there, too. <laughs> but for an entirely different reason than his. They were glad I was there because if I was there, I couldn't be here, you see. But not this set. He was so glad I was there that he lit up like a Christmas tree. And I was hooked before he ever opened his mouth again. And when he did, this is what he said. Why, take off your hat and coat. You're in the right place. And he took me and rocked me to sleep. This is A.A. This is the reason our program works when almost nothing else does on the face of the earth. This is the reason right here. We are allowed to get sober by the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous. We maintain sobriety by the practice of principles. We don't get sober on profundities or principles. We're allowed to get sober by the spirit. The spirit that made that old boy light up like a Christmas tree and said, take off your hat and coat. You're in the right place. And carry me in there and rock me to sleep. <clears throat> Did it ever occur to you how fortunate we are that we love each other? Did that ever occur to you? A wet drunk is not easy to love. It just about takes one to love one, doesn't it? <laughs> really. 
But that's the way it is with us. Now, without any thought of judgmental analysis at all, but because I, having been a periodic for the last dozen years I drank, have no way of understanding my own performance, I don't expect the non-alcoholic world to understand it. I don't expect it. <clears throat> but just for by re reason that I want to make a little comment, if a non-alcoholic sees one of us in the gutter, he gives us a wide berth. He gives us a wide berth. He thinks that uh, if we had any backbone, willpower, you know, we wouldn't be there. Some of them probably think we like it there, you know. But when you and I see one of us in the gutter, we don't think he's there because he wants to be. We know he's there because he has to be. And we know that he hates that gutter more than anything on the face of the earth because he's been there before. He hates it. But he has to be there because he don't know how not to be there. So we can go get him and pick him up, carry him home with us and share with him. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share, share. Caring and sharing is Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the spirit we're talking about. And it's called L-O-V-E, love. And they say God is love, and I suspect that's true. Very fortunate we are that we love each other. Now, that's why I'm here tonight. That's exactly why I'm here. I can look at me that night and think, supposing, and he's the only one in the house that came over the door, and I can say, supposing he hadn't have come. You know, I might have gone right out of that place and died and never gotten back here. So... That's why I'm here. I happen to love this program, and I love its people. And it's no chore for me to come down here. No, no, nothing that I do is so satisfying as spending time with people like you, sharing my experience, strength, and hope, such as this. It's exactly why I'm here. <clears throat> now, I don't believe there's enough intellectual knowledge on the face of the earth to get one alcoholic sober and keep him sober. Something has to happen inside of us that makes it unnecessary for us to drink. Tonight, there's nothing in a bottle or a needle or a pill or pot of acid that can do anything to me but tear me down. Because, you see, I have what I was looking for in the bottle, which is the ability to live comfortably, peacefully, and joyously with myself. 
And when I can do that, I have absolutely no difficulty living with you. And it comes about so simply and so beautifully when we apply the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to ourselves for sobriety only. I like to say for sobriety only because I think it's necessary as soon as possible for us to get rid of all the conditions on sobriety. For instance, I got here with about as nice a bunch of related disorders <laughs> as one guy can put together. My good wife, after 50 years, was divorcing me. And I might say quickly, without cause. <laughs> I'd given her 20 of the best years of my life. <laughs> I guess you divorced me. Our kids wouldn't even come home when I was around. My boss man had sent word to the house that if I ever step foot in the plant again, he's going to throw me through the window. And the window that he had chosen for that purpose don't open. <laughs> it was plate glass. I had no home, no job, no health, no sanity, and no money. And I don't think you can get a nicer batch of related disorders than those. <laughs> and I never spent five seconds on any one of those related disorders. Not five seconds on any one of them. And every one of them disappeared along with the obsession to drink. And I didn't know when they had gone, and I didn't know when the obsession to drink had gone. It just came about by doing these simple things one day at a time to the best of my ability. So I highly recommend it. But I do think it's necessary for us as soon as possible to get rid of all the conditions. If we're here to get our husbands back or our wives back or our kids back or our health back or get the law for vax, those are all fairly re reasonable reasons, but they're not good enough. They're not good enough. When we are here for the purpose that these, this program is worked out, proven, and written down for sobriety only, we find out one of the greatest things in life that the formula for sobriety and the formula for the good life and the formula for self-discovery is all the same formula. It's the same formula. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Sobriety, the good life, and self-discovery. And I believe that's what our program is all about. Now, many of us, many of us up in my country, I'm sure you don't, but up in my country, many, many, many of us have decided that this is a program of self-improvement. Self-improvement. Particularly out in the west end of town. Don't tell him I said so. <laughs> 
Every time they stump their toe, they run home and write 17 pages. <laughs> then get a hold of their uh, sponsor and find out what to do about this. You know, to improve themselves. <laughs> I get some of the de- I, I get some of the most. Fantastic calls. I started to say, God damn this. And I shouldn't say that. You don't say that in Vista. <clears throat> we got a lot of uh, uh, meaningful relationships going up our way. And these monkeys, both male and female, are calling me and they're telling me they're mad at God because he let their meaningful relationshiper get away from them. And they're double mad at him because he hasn't given them another one to take its place. Now, this isn't just once in a while. I got this all the time. I don't know where y'all got the words meaningful relationships. In my day, they called that shacking up. (laughs) (laughs) And I still think that's what it is. But my comment is this. How long do we have to live in this program before we find out that love includes possession but not the necessity to possess? Not the necessity to possess. The necessity to possess is ego. I want, I don't want, I like, I don't like, I yeah, 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 yeah. And the first nine steps of this program of ours is there for the purpose of squeezing us out of ourselves to get rid of the human ego, the I want, I don't want. The book says the bondage of self, you know, to be rid of the bondage of self. And that's what it's for. And it'll do it to anybody who honestly practices the first nine steps for sobriety only. We get down to the middle of number nine. I mean, to the end of number nine. And we are surrendered. If we got here, not surrendered. I happen to get here surrendered, thank God. Because the only way I could have gotten here I could not surrender. I never surrendered once in 43 years of life. And had I had to consciously surrender the first time, I would have died without coming to AA. Because I could not do it. I had been conditioned for generations to believe that surrender was for the weak. The weak man surrenders. The strong man wins. And I couldn't any more surrender than I could fly. So my last trip out... I drank just enough. 
to take me through the gates of insanity and death. And I was surrendered. And the only credit I can take for it is I drank the whiskey. That's the only credit I can take. And I came to the program, surrendered. And I had only one thing in mind by coming. I wanted nothing for me, not even sobriety. But I needed whatever time I was going to live, which was very short, to rub out as much of the record as I could before I died. <clears throat> and I came to you to find out how to live today without having to drink. So I could use today to rub out as much of the record as I could. I knew that the people I talked with that night were drunks, and I knew they weren't broke. Because I heard what they said, and I saw their eyes. There's nothing in, the, in my book of human relations that is quite so beautiful as the eyes of an alcoholic who's found his way to this program. They're absolutely fantastic. So I knew that you were drunks, and I knew you weren't drunk. And I was comfortable with you. And for that reason, and one more, I was in a meeting every night for six months. The second reason was I didn't have any place else to go. <laughs> And that's, that's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good deal there, when you got no place else to go. And after six months, I discovered that I hadn't had a drink or a pill for six months. Now, that was the first discovery, the first great discovery in my life. I hadn't had a drink or a pill for six months. And I was so tickled about it that I immediately started trying to give this thing away to other drunks. And another six months went by, and I made another very fabulous discovery. I discovered that I had a wife and kids, and they were living like kittens. Now, this was a tremendous discovery, because they were gone and should be gone, and I wasn't entitled to have them back. And I'll give you a little highlight on that, because I had me a girlfriend in Beverly Hills. She went to meetings with me all the time in the first period of my sobriety. She was a little bitty thing. She walked like she was walking on eggs. She was probably 25 years my senior. And she lived up in the big numbers, and she had big numbers. She was very, very wealthy, very wealthy. And her name was Louise, and she was an elk. I lived between Wilshire and Olympic, down on the flatlands where the poor people lived. But not her. She was up in the hills. So she'd go with me every time I'd call. I'd say, Louise, how about a meeting? She'd say, come and get me. And so we were in many, many meetings together. And sometime between the first six months and the first year, she called my house thinking to get me, and she got Miss C on the line. She said, who the hell are you? <laughs> Mrs. C says, well, I'm Chuck's wife. Didn't know he had a wife. 
Mrs. C says, well, he doesn't either. <laughs> and I didn't. That uh, sometime between the first six months and the first year, I discovered I had a wife and kids. I never lived like kittens. And another six months went by, and I discovered that I was still trying to clean up my desk at the office. The man had come in to throw me through the window, but he didn't. He recognized that something had happened to me. And he didn't throw me through the window. He says to me, Charter, what the hell's happened to you? And I says, don't know. And I didn't. But he knew something had happened, so he didn't throw me through the window. And 18 months later, I discovered I was still trying to clean up my desk. And business was good. It was plum good. Another year went by. And I discovered that my state of being was better than anything I'd ever dreamed of. All this time, I'm in a meeting all the time. All the time, in a meeting. Every night. <clears throat> and life was real good. And now six years have gone by. And I discovered that I was never alone anymore. I, who had walked alone from the first memory I have, I was never even a part of my own family. I was a rebel, and I didn't want to be a rebel. Just like you, I wanted so much to be a part of, and I was forever apart from. And I discovered that I was never alone anymore that I had a God of my very own, and wherever I am, he is. Now, in my opinion, when we make this discovery, the search is over, and life begins. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. And I think the finest formula for making this discovery that I have ever run into is our formula for sobriety, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Again, I have to say that it's very, very necessary that we don't get a lot of grandiose ideas about changing lives and all that stuff. Self-improvement don't fit this thing at all. It just doesn't fit it. If you and I could have self-improved us, we'd have done it years ago. We would not now be members of this liberal colony, would we? Now, I said a while ago, unless this becomes number one, we can't have it. And unless it remains number one, we can't keep it. The man that I called, the first man that I called, I became very, very well acquainted with, was with him much in the early years of my sobriety. He was 
a little later on, he and another chap taught the beginner's meeting in North Hollywood, one of the big meetings uptown that's been running ever since I came here and a little while before I got here. And he was one of the teachers in that meeting. Then he was good. And last summer I was out in the valley and they said that he was in Briarwood. In Briarwood. A detox in the hospital out there. Now I don't say this to scare anybody because you can't scare an alcoholic into doing something. You can't even scare him bad enough to get him to do the things this program <laughs> suggests that we do. We can get awful scared for just a little while. But when we get so we can walk straight, we forget that we were scared. We're going to do it ourselves, you see. So unless it remains first, we can't keep it. And my way of thinking, because something has to happen in here. I thought for many years that as soon as I knew enough, everything was going to be all right. And I got to the place where I knew everything there was to know. There was nothing that I didn't know. And a very, very sad thing had happened to me. I couldn't even get out of bed to come and tell you what I knew. <laughs> and for a philosopher of my ability, I'm telling you, that's a tragedy. I wasn't known as a drunken deacon for 10 years for nothing, I'll tell you that. So now I have to say that we can live ourselves in the right thinking, but we cannot think ourselves in the right living. Actually, the reason that I'm so much inclined to talk about this self-improvement thing a little bit is that insofar as I'm able to perceive, the longer we work on the problem, the bigger it gets. The longer we work on the problem, the bigger it gets. Self-thinking is insanity. Self-thinking is insanity. To live in the problem, you know. Because we cannot do it on our own. The book tells us in many instances, we find that we, that is you and I, can do things I can do. And a little later on it tells us that we find that God is doing for us the things that we couldn't do, you know? And it is. Because as I told you in the beginning, I can't anymore stay sober on my own tonight than I could 35 years ago. And I have lived for 33 years and seven months without one conscious desire for a drink of whiskey or a sedating or tranquilizing pill. <coughs> And I'm going to keep it up until you pat me in the face with a scoop. 
because I've never had it so good. This is the only easy life I've ever known, the only good life that's ever been mine. And it all came about hobnobbing with a bunch of bums like you. <laughs> Share in our experience, strength, and hope with each other. It all came about. And I'm uh, as grateful as any man you'll ever see. I'm so grateful I can't see. I can't even take credit for coming from my first meeting. I take the credit for the first 43 years of my life. At 43, I was a failure as a husband, a father, a businessman, a man, and a drunk. And that's all the departments I had. I take credit for that. I take no credit for the last 33 years and seven months. I give you people a lot of credit. My gratitude starts with you. And then to the program, and then to God. Because that's the way it happened to me. See, if somebody like you that ran over at that door and carried me in there and rocked me to sleep. So my gratitude starts with you people. Then with the program, and then God, because that's the way it worked out in my own life. Now, for the fun of it. I think our program is nothing in the world but uncovering, discovering, and discarding. That's all it is. Uncover, discover, and discard. I have lived with people like you for 33 years, and I'm convinced from the top of my longest hair to my toenails that the first two words of the Lord's Prayer mean what they say. Totally convinced. And they say, Our Father. Our Father, God. Now, if that be true, you can let your imagination go crazy. And you can't even get close to the truth of being itself. God, my Father, I, his kid. And that's the way it is. And I think it's very, very fortunate for us that it's so set up that you and I can't even screw it up. We can't do it. The carpenter man put it like this. He says, who by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? Which means, in my way of thinking, that you can't change the reality of your own being. You can only change your experience in reality. For instance, I sat in the same chair I sit in now for 10 years in hell and 33 years in heaven. Same chair. Now, nothing happened to the chair, nothing happened to the living room, nothing, nothing happened to the wife, nothing happened to the kids. Something happened to me. And I moved out of hell into heaven. Now, to me, that's a, that's a sermon as long as from here to Mars and back. Heaven was always in that chair. I was in hell. You see? Hell is very real as an experience, but it is not reality. Sickness is very real as an experience, but it is not reality. Hate is very real as an experience, but it is not reality. And it's so fixed that we can't gum it up. 
Some of these days, we've got to come back home to the living God that made us. We can't change the reality of our own being. And this is the reality of our own being, whether we believe it or not. Even if we deny it, we can't change it. And that's why there's another line in that other book that says, if God be for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nobody. Nobody. And no thing. This is a fantastic deal we got here. Don't miss it. <laughs> Don't miss it. And all we got to do is get out of our own way. Get out of our own way. Get rid of that duality that the human ego is. Duality is our problem and unity is the answer. In him I live and move and am my being. Now, I'm not preaching to you. This to me is what AA has preached to me and shown me. And it's happened in my own life. In my own life. Otherwise, I wouldn't be so sure that it's true. But it happened to me. You know? Now, who else thought like I do? <laughs> I'm going to get into some pretty fast company here in a hurry. I think the carpenter man did. I think the carpenter man did. He, he said, I and my father are one. Hmm. What do you think of that? He said, I am in the father, and he and me and I and you. That's pretty close, isn't it? Huh? That's what, it, that's what the man said. And again, he said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Now, that's what we're talking about, uncovering and discovering something that's already here. It's already here. Uncovering and discovering. Brother Lawrence, he was talking to one of his troubled friends, and he says, he is within you. Look not for him elsewhere. That's what the man said. He's a friend of mine. He was born and uh, is active in 1666. So we were kids together. <laughs> he was a pot and pan washer in a monastery back just outside of Paris. And he, uh, he became quite a counselor. And he says, he is within you. Look not for, me, uh, for him elsewhere. There's another guy. Now, I'm, uh, these are all Catholics. And I'm quoting. And I can quote them because I don't happen to be Catholic. <laughs> you can't say I came down here to lay Catholicism on you. Because they wouldn't take me if I wanted them to. I ran into that, uh, I think it was Saturday night, in Glendale. And old Matt Campion was sitting right there, you know. And I said, they wouldn't take me if I, if I wanted to get in. And old Matt says, is that right? <laughs> He's a Catholic. So, I'm going to quote two more, and then I'm going to shut up and sit down. One of them was Meister Eckhart, who was a Dominican priest in Germany, way back about the same time as Brother Lawrence. And he said it like this, <clears throat> You have heard that nature abhors a vacuum. 
I tell you that God abhors a vacuum, can't abide a vacuum any place under heaven, however small. The I want or don't want, I like or don't like. And automatically, you're full of God. And the next guy is a saint. I'm stepping up now. <laughs> if you're Irish, if you're Saint Augustine, if you're like me, it's Saint Augustine. <laughs> now, I think the reason that I love him so much, he reminds me so much of me. Now, that's not after he became a saint. That's before he became a saint. <laughs> because he was a naughty boy. St. Augustine, in his earlier days, had a very large weakness for whiskey. That sort of identifies with me pretty good. And he had another very large weakness, and that was for good-looking women. <laughs> And I think I identify pretty good there, too. And he got in a lot of trouble. Now, his mother was praying with him, praying for him for, for, for 40 years. And every time he'd go by her, he'd pat her a little and say, keep praying. <laughs> Sometimes it might happen. And it did. Now, here's Augustine in his last days. And he's talking to God. And he's saying to God, Too late have I loved thee. <clears throat> oh, thou beauty of ancient days, yet ever new. Too late have I loved thee, and behold, thou wert within. And I abroad. And there I searched for thee, deformed I, plunging amidst the fair forms which thou hast made. Thou wert with me, but I was not with thee. That, that just blows my mind. <laughs> Thirty years of my life, I was trying to do the impossible. I was trying to find my very own God. I had him placed someplace else. I had him placed someplace else. And, of course, what I was looking for, I was looking with. And you don't find that way. So, when I totally and completely ran out of time and came here just looking for a way to survive long enough to rub out the record, things started to happen, and they didn't ever quit. The third day of last month, I had my 77th birthday. You stupid bunch of mutts. You haven't got any life in you. Every one of you know that I don't look like I'm 77 years old. Now I'm going to say that again, and I want every one of you to say, no. <laughs> the third day of last month, I had my 77th year birthday. That's right. That's good. And my 77th year is the finest year I've ever lived, including my childhood.
including my childhood. Don't sell this thing short, kids. It's all here. Do it for sobriety and find each other and your very own God. God bless you. Thank you very much.